Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week, we're looking at Russian foreign policy. The Russians are reported to have moved fighter jets, tanks and troops into a base in Syria. Meanwhile, President Putin's gearing up to make a major speech at the United Nations. So what are the Russians up to? Joining me to discuss that question is Neil Buckley, our former bureau chief in Moscow, and on the line from Washington, Jeff Dyer, our diplomatic correspondent. Neil, what are the Russians up to? Why are they suddenly moving military men and material into Syria? Well, this is, of course, the $64,000 question, and the answer is we don't know for sure because the Russians haven't told us. We may learn more when Vladimir Putin addresses the UN General Assembly on Monday for the first time in a decade. What's pretty clear, though, is that they are doing this and seem relatively happy for the West to know about it. When the first reports came out a couple of weeks ago, the Russians were denying them, and it was a bit like the situation with the so-called green men in eastern Ukraine. But they very quickly started to admit, yes, we are doing something, and the Russians are no longer trying to rebut any reports of their build-up in Syria. What we think they're doing is a number of things. Projecting Russian power, first of all, trying to project the idea of Russia being back as an important global player. They are probably trying to support Bashar al-Assad at a time when it appears that he is significantly weakened and could be overthrown. So either support him or position themselves for the end game if he is overthrown. They may well be trying to protect their assets in Syria. They do have a naval base at Tartus and this air base at Latakia and uh, listening facility, which is important uh, in the Mediterranean. And it appears they may well be just trying to force the Americans to engage with them. America really has been refusing to do this since the Ukrainian crisis last year. Bring the Americans to the table in particular, force Barack Obama to sit down with Mr Putin, which they seem very keen to do, possibly at the UN next week. So, Jeff, a lot of this, as Neil says, is about the Americans, probably. So what are the Americans thinking? Are they alarmed by what the Russians are doing in Syria? Or do they in any way buy the lie that President Putin, I suspect, will push at the UN that actually Russia and the US have a common interest in fighting Islamic State in Syria? Well, the initial American reaction when the reports first started coming out about the Russian military build-up was to denounce it, was to criticise it, was to say this was going to further the violence, was going to prop up the Assad regime. In the last day or two, they've slightly backed off that in a much more conciliatory tone, saying that these latest deployments of Russian forces are really just there to protect the base that they have in Latakia, and maybe it's not quite such an offensive move. Now, why the Americans changed tone? Well, there could be a number of reasons. One could simply be that they realise this is a Russian fait accompli, and so there's no point publicly criticising something that you can't stop. But then it also could get back into what Neil was talking about, about what are Putin's motives. Officially, the Americans are saying that they just don't know yet what the Russians are doing. But as Neil said, I mean, there are two kind of big options. One is that he's trying to prop up the Assad regime. The other option that he actually realises that Assad is 
going to fall and he's positioning himself for the transition away from Assad. And if that is the case, then that actually could be a big opening for the U.S. because that's really been, for this administration, their only real play in Syria for the last couple of years has been to try and get the Russians in a place where they're going to push or encourage Assad to leave and have a real negotiation about getting to a different regime and trying to have a kind of political transition and stitch the country together there after that. So if that's the case, then although this seems very bad for the U.S., it seems like a challenge to U.S. interests, it seems like a challenge to U.S. credibility in Syria, it also could potentially be the opening to a way out as well. And Neil, I mean, from the Russian point of view, I mean, obviously, one can perhaps understand the diplomatic thinking, but it's a huge gamble. I mean, the experience of Western powers, and indeed the Russians, if you go back to Afghanistan, is that putting troops on the ground in the greater Middle East is not a good idea. Are they aware of this? I'm sure they are very aware of this. And there are a number of risks. As Jeff was saying, of course, the Americans are very concerned about the possibility that US and Russian forces could somehow clash accidentally in Syria itself. So a lot of the talk has been about de-conflicting the respective missions, to use the jargon. But of course, for Russia, memories of its entanglement in Afghanistan in the 1980s are very strong. Popular memories are very strong. Many Russians who served there, and there were warnings even last year when Russia was going into eastern Ukraine that it should be wary of getting bogged down there in the same way the Soviets were in in Afghanistan. So definitely a risk, uh, big risks internationally and at home. But what we know about Mr. Putin is he is a risk taker. He will take gambles if he thinks that there is uh, some potential significant gain from this. And I think that what is very significant is that we've seen this build up in Syria happen at the same time the conflict in eastern Ukraine has fallen to its quietest levels for months, actually for more than a year. And the diplomacy, while it's very difficult around eastern Ukraine, is continuing. So it's not impossible that Mr. Putin is looking for some sort of face-saving way out of East Ukraine that might ease sanctions, which are having a big impact on the economy, and at the same time trying to reopen some sort of partnership with the US or at least try and present uh, an image of, uh, of Russia as being a more helpful rather than confrontational force in global affairs. And Jeff, do you think there are takers for that idea in Washington, for the idea that, OK, we may be past the worst in Ukraine and now is the time to perhaps gradually try to reintegrate the Russians as a potentially useful, if obviously difficult, partner in solving a lot of the world's problems, particularly in the Middle East? I think even with the short term, the way the Ukraine conflict has gone in the last few weeks, that it has died down a bit. Even with that, I still think there's a huge amount of resentment in the Obama administration towards Russia, a huge amount of anger, a huge amount of almost personal betrayal towards Putin, the way that they think he behaved during the conflict. And that's not just going to disappear anytime soon. And so while they're thinking about possibly having to talk to him at the UN, there's still a lot of reluctance to do that. There's also, in broader political terms, I mean, Russia has very much in the last couple of years become the big sort of bogeyman in American politics. Putin has become this much more prominent figure, and so it would be politically very hard for Obama to do that. However, thinking it through the Syrian terms, the administration, I think, would very much like to have that kind of dialogue with the Russians to really get them involved in a proper negotiation about moving to a a post-Assad regime. And so if they did think there was an opening there, there would be a lot of pressure from that end for the administration to do more business with Russia, even if that meant holding its nose and meeting Putin in some way. So, Jeff, in America's calculations about 
Russia's role in the Middle East. How far is their ability to work with the Russians over the Iranian nuclear deal? Is that a possible template for future cooperation? Uh, some think they were very pleased at their ability to keep working with the Russians during the nuclear negotiations, even with everything that was going with Ukraine. That shows that you know both countries have an ability to to isolate off these particular problems. But I think they also see the nuclear deal as very much a one-off. It reflected the different national interests of all the countries involved there, and I don't think they expect that kind of level of cooperation necessarily to translate into anything else, either in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. And do you think that, as far as the administration is thinking about Syria goes, that they are now focused above all on Islamic State rather than on Assad, and that therefore there is, even if they're reluctant to acknowledge it, a kind of identity of interest with the Russians, or is that too simple? There's an element of that in the way people are thinking. I mean, clearly you've seen John Kerry say in the last few days that the US might be flexible in the way they think about when Assad might have to leave power. So ever so slightly more conciliatory tone towards Assad. But the problem with that line of argument is that it, and, and the really difficult issue for the US, is what do you do with all these other jihadi groups who are against the Assad regime as well? It's one thing to say that you're going to go after Islamic State, and maybe Russia will be a partner there. But how do the, all these other jihadi groups fit into the equation? Are you going to open up the fight against them? Some of these are being supported in some ways or other by other allies in the Middle East. That's the really difficult, complicated issues. Where do all these other groups fit, fit into the equation? Are they going to become targets of a U.S. military campaign, or are they in some way, or some of them potentially, a solution in a broader political negotiation? And Neil, I guess that you know, we talked about some of the risks of the Russian military involvement. The nightmare scenario from the West point of view is obviously a direct clash, say, between the American planes over Syria and the Russians. But equally, if the Russians are intent on propping up Assad, they could well be fighting US-backed groups quite quickly. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a danger that their forces, that Russian forces, could hit opposition groups who are getting US backing, or indeed that US forces could hit Assad forces that are being advised by Russian advisers. So tremendous risks involved. But I think for Mr. Putin and for those people around him, what we have to remember about Russia is I think it's desperate to be taken seriously as a major player on the world stage. I think a lot of what Putin has been doing in recent years has been trying to build up Russia to regain that position that it had in the Soviet era. I think the loss of that status is something that really rankles with the kind of officials who surround Mr. Putin now. And there's tremendous anger towards the US, which they see as having thrown its weight around and also made quite a mess of things in various places in recent years, but a kind of envy of the US as well, that the US can strut around and intervene in these various situations around the world. The Russians, I think, are sending a bit of a message saying, we're back, we can do the same, and we claim the rights to do the same, even with the uh, attendant risks. So even as they denounce the Americans in a funny sort of way, they seek to emulate them? I think there's a tremendous America envy, actually, in uh, in, <laughs> in Moscow. And, and part of the anger is mixed with this sort of envy that they can do that. We want to be able to do the same thing. And actually, they will say to you, Russian officials, well, we tried, you know, in earlier years to create some sort of partnership with the West and we were rejected. And now that we've been rejected, we're going to have to do it ourselves in our own right. And what about Ukraine? We talked a little bit about it earlier. I mean, do you buy the idea that Putin might be willing to permanently dial it down in Ukraine, really stop the war? 
Or is this a tactical pause? I guess nobody can know, but what's your guess? I think it depends very much on what kind of settlement or what the shape of any settlement is in eastern Ukraine. I think Russia wants to retain some lever of influence in Ukraine and use the eastern Ukrainian separatist regions as that lever of influence. So I think if they can secure something which meets that target, then they may be prepared to dial down the violence. It's also important for Mr Putin not to lose face, given that his media machine, his propaganda machine, has spewed out this invective against Ukraine's leaders for the past year, year and a half, and portrayed Russia as taking a a kind of noble stand against these people. And it would be difficult for him to be seen to be giving too much ground. So, Jeff, finally, I mean, I guess if Russia wants to be a bigger presence on the world stage, some of the Obama administration's critics have been saying for some time that one of the unspoken themes of American foreign policy under President Obama is a reduced role on the world stage. But America was until very recently, maybe still is, the dominant power in the Middle East. Are they going to just react viscerally to the idea of a bigger Russian role? Are they prepared to concede that in the Middle East? Or will that now start playing a role in their thinking as they look at Syria, that they don't want Russia to make a comeback there? Well, I think there are two things. I mean, one is just to put in a bit of context. I mean, Russia has had a military relationship with Syria for, for decades. It has its naval base in Tartus. This is not a new thing. It is a significant increase in Russia's presence in the short term, but it's not a, a new factor that Russia has this very strong military relationship with Syria. So in the broader sense, it doesn't dramatically change the balance of power in the broader Middle East. America is still by far and away the kind of dominant outside force there. It has 30,000, 40,000 troops in the region. But then thinking about purely again in the Syrian terms, and this is happening at a time when really the rest of America's strategy in Syria is in complete disarray. I mean, the plans they have to build this sort of moderate third force that can take on both ISIS and then maybe on the Assad regime is in tatters. There are now maybe 60 or 70 soldiers they manage to train who are operating, and at the moment they're not quite sure where some of those soldiers are. So there is this vacuum in American Syrian strategy, and you know, Russia is entering during that moment. So that is what is making it look as if Russia's 10 feet tall, and maybe it's not quite as important in the broader Middle East as it might seem at this particular moment. Jeff Dyer in Washington, Neil Buckley here in the studio in London. Thank you both very much. Indeed, we'll be watching President Putin's speech very closely when he makes it next week. But that's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code Program.